You were listening to The History of Religions and Their Gods, hosted by yours truly, the Skeptical Ghost Heathen. You're really going to need some lube, once again, and some sunscreen for this one, baby. You'll see why. Hello, heathens and history buffs. Welcome back to the show. And welcome back to the history of religions and their gods. A little over the top? Maybe just a little? But today is October 2nd, and it still is 2023. And this season, 6, which is episode 10 of Mark's Homeric Epic and the Gospel of Odysseus. Now, this episode, or chapter title, I'm going to call it, wait for it, Magnificent feedings and a menage a trois and heads on platters. Now, I have to apologize, guys, for taking so damn long in releasing this episode. Well, let's break it down a little bit. Well, I went camping back in August and didn't record, obviously, because I'm camping. And my wife unfortunately got laid off from her job, which sucked. So she's basically around every single minute of my life, so which was great, fantastic. So I obviously didn't record because blasphemy isn't allowed inside the house. <laughs> then we went to Orcas Island on vacation in the Pacific Northwest. And it was fucking amazing. We were there for like 10 days. Saw a bald eagle, saw some orcas, obviously. Um, did some paddle boarding, kayaking, canoeing. You name it, we did it all. But needless to say, guys, I could not record. And then we went camping again a couple weeks ago. So life does get in the way of progress every once in a while for the heathen. But I do apologize. And I hope that I didn't lose anyone out there because of the delay. But guys, I am super excited about this chapter as it will involve the execution of John the Baptist. A three-way love affair. And a beach party. Hence the lube and the sunscreen. So folks, if you're ready to do this thing, well, grab your beach blanket, sunscreen, and flip-flops, and let's do this thing! The death of John the Baptist is one of Mark's finest literary accomplishments. I mean, come on now, guys. He should have won a goddamn Emmy or something like that. Because he has captured the imagination of his readers from the very first century all the way until today. Two thousand years later, where Christians still mourn his death. Now, according to this author, the author for Mark, Herod had married the wife of his brother Philip. 
And John had declared himself as being against the union. No, I hate this. It can't happen. What? Now, the Tetrarch, which is a Roman governor over a particular Roman state, well, he had him arrested and placed in prison behind bars. But at the same time, Herod feared John because he, he knew that he was righteous and he knew that he was holy and even worse, loved by many. So he protected him. And when Herod heard him speak, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he loved to listen to him. Now, his new wife, Herodias, yes, Herodias, was not so open-minded about this whole union and actually held a grudge against him and even wanted him dead. But she could not, because her new husband, Herod, loved him, liked him, and actually really appreciated him, because people loved him. But folks, an opportunity came for her, when on Herod's birthday, he gave a banquet, a huge feast, a huge feeding for many, for all the courtiers and the officers, and for the leaders of Galilee. Now, when Herodias' daughter came in to dance for the king and for the crowd, she pleased Herod and his guests. So much so that the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even if half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, Well, mother... What should I ask for? And she replied, The head of John the Baptizer. Now immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, the king, obviously, Herod, was deeply grieved. Yet, out of regard of his oath, and in front of his guests, he did not want to refuse her. He couldn't. How could he? So immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to go bring back John's head on a platter as requested by his new bride's daughter, the dancer. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head back on a platter and handed it to the girl. Then the girl, in return, took this platter with this big, sloppy, bloody head of John the Baptist over to her mother in this big banquet table full of people, officers and whatnot, army, you know, commanders. Now, when his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, heard about it, well, they came back and they retrieved his body and they laid it, laid it inside a tomb as found in Mark 6, verses 21 through 29. Now, stepping back ever so slightly into reality, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, who also narrated the murder of John the Baptist, and when comparing the two accounts, well, one might just suspect that the author for Mark may have freely reshaped the facts in order to serve his own literary needs. Because in Antiquities 18... 118, 
Josephus depicted Herod as an asshole, calculating, ruthless murderer, ruler who treated John with contempt. Now, according to Josephus, Herod feared John's eloquence and the seditious potential of his sermons. In quote, Herod decided, therefore, that it would be much better than to strike first and to be rid of him before his work led to an uprising than to wait for an upheaval, get involved in a difficult situation, and see his mistake. Now, Mark's account, on the other hand, not only exonerates Herod, it incriminates Herodias, his wife, as the murderous mastermind. Whereas Josephus attributed John's death to Herod's preemptive strike. Mark attributed it to Herodias's libido and her bruised ego. That little dancing whore. Now, some scholars have attributed Mark's tale to a variant of oral traditions regarding the death of John the Baptist, while others have attempted to isolate it to just some literary influences especially the opening chapters found in the book of Esther from the Jewish Bible and its vigorous interpretations in post-biblical Judaism. Now, Esther probably did somewhat influence Mark's story, but it's not clear how Esther alone could have generated such a story. Because in several respects, the stories are radically different. For example, in Esther, one finds no love triangle or menage a trois between a woman and her two lovers. Now, the two women in Mark's tale, well, they're villains who secure the death of the Baptist. But the character counterparts at Esther, Vashti, and especially Esther herself, they're heroines. Whereas Esther made noble use of a, a Hauser's offer of half of his kingdom, well, Herodias, on the other hand, and her dancing daughter, instead abused the offer and instead asked for the head of John on a platter. If Mark did indeed borrow from the book of Esther, then why did he choose to demonize the women's characters in his version? Now, Mark's tale here, it's not unique to literature because it shares many characteristics with other Greek and Latin novels that go on to narrate murders that take place at banquets, sometimes birthday parties, or even victory celebrations. And almost always hosted by a nobleman or a king whose power extends to capital punishment on somebody. Now the banquet theme, it typically provides the reader with some predictable details to create the setting. There's always a ton of drinking involved and some dancing, dialogue among the guests, and even some debauchery. Honestly, my type of party, if I can get naked, folks, I'm getting naked. And among the guests is always someone, and often a lover, who charms, begs, or even tricks the ruler into murdering someone, and often at the feast itself. Now the result is ironically hideous. A feast gone befouled by human blood. Indeed, the punch of such stories derive in part from this disgusting irony. Because if one were to propose the most likely genre for Mark's tale, it would be just this sort of thing. And we can see this type of tradition 
by Herodias, Diogenes, Laertius, Livy, and even Seneca the Elder. Now, as we all know, I think that this author was brilliant, and quite frankly, maybe even ahead of his own time, breaking down literary traditions, barriers, and practices, because he will generate a story while using multiple and predictable other stories that he is well aware that his audience has already read, or were at least were customary traditions of stories being told within Christian households. Now, there are several details in Mark's tale about the murderous women at the banquet that also suggest the influence of Homer's account of the murder of Agmanon. Now, the poet of the Odyssey narrates the aspect of the story in three different passages, and each time it's in the form of a flashback. For example, the Odyssey, Book 3, pages 254 to 308, and Book 4, pages 512 to 547, and Book 11, pages 404 to 434. And the basic tale goes like this. To fight for his brother's honor against the Trojans, Agmanon had left his wife Clytemnestra and Achaea and ordered someone to stand guard and watch her because of her infidelity. Now, during the king's long absence, Agisthus, his own cousin, murdered the guard and then joined Clytemnestra in her bed. So when Agmanon finally returns to his home, well, he was not aware of Clytemnestra's adultery. Then Agisthus prepared for a feast for the king, and in quotation, brought him up all unaware of his doom, and when he had feasted him, he slew him, as one slays an ox at the corn crib. And not one of the comrades of the son of Atreus was left. Of all that followed him, not one of the men of Agisthus, but they were all slain in the halls. End quote. And that's from the Odyssey, the fourth book, pages 534 to 537. Now, the soul of Agmanon in Hades, he told his own tale to Odysseus, and it reads like this. Agisthus hatched my doom and my destruction. He killed me, he with my one accursed wife. He invited me to his palace. He sat me down to feast, then cut me down as a man cuts down some ox at the trough. You and your day, Odysseus, have witnessed hundreds slaughtered, killed in single combat, or killed in pitched battle. So true. But if you had laid eyes on this, it would have wrenched your heart. How, how we sprawled by the mixing bowl and loaded tables there. Throughout the palace, the whole floor was awash with blood. So there's nothing more deadly, bestial than a woman set on works like these. What a monstrous thing she plotted. Slaughtered her own lawful husband. The Odyssey, Book 11, pages 409 to 411, pages 416 to 420, at 426-430. Now, the great feast of Nestor and Menelaus, it had set the pattern for heroic hospitality. A pattern, however, brutally violated here. 
because the contrast serves to highlight the outrage of Agmanon's murder. Agmanon, therefore, warned Odysseus that if he were to ever return safely to Ithaca, his home, he will need to keep his identity a secret. Now, there are several aspects about the murder of Agmanon that finds echoes all throughout Mark's narrative about the murder of John the Baptist. Now, for example, Mark also tells the tale just like Homer in a flashback scene. The only major violation of sequential chronology in his entire gospel, mind you. Because in both stories, brothers or cousins compete for the same woman. And the rivalry ends with a death. And more precisely, a murder. Although other characters perform the actual execution in both stories, the adulteresses deserve the greater blame for the murder not the executioner. Homer emphasized the irony of the murder at a feast. How we have sprawled by the mixing bowl and loaded tables there. Now, in Mark's story, it's no less ironic because he, the executioner, went and beheaded John in his prison cell, then brought the head back on a platter and then handed it over to the girl. Then the girl, in return, handed it over to her mother. Les femmes fatales. Now, more distinctive, however, is the role of both stories in preparing their readers for later events concerning the protagonist. Homer narrated Agamemnon's murder as an anticipation of the dangers that Odysseus would face once he returned back to home to Ithaca. Because he, like the king of Mycenae and Argos, had also left behind a wife and a son. Whereas Clytemnestra had only one suitor, but came to her desires, and cared nothing about her husband's whereabouts during his return from sea. And Penelope, too, had to put off her advances of a 108 suitors, despite her reasonable assumption that her husband Odysseus had died at sea. When Agmanon told Odysseus all about his woes while his visit in Hades, he warned the hero to not make the same mistake of returning openly and exposed. Odysseus, heeding his warning, returned to Ithaca in disguise, a ruse all the wiser so far, as his his entire crew, unlike Agmanon's, had perished at sea. Therefore, Odysseus was able to turn the tables. The suitors did not slay Odysseus. No, instead, he slew them all. Now, similarly, this author for the Gospel of Mark, he handcrafted John the Baptist's execution as a warning to the reader of what the authorities might do to Jesus once they trap him into claiming that he was the Messiah. Say it! Say it, damn it! Now, Mark is building tension here. He's also building anticipation for his readers. Because Jesus, just like Odysseus, attempted to keep his identity a secret when he returned home to Jerusalem. And for Odysseus, Ithaca. And like Herod's role in the death of John, well, Pilate will also reluctantly participate in Jesus' execution. He doesn't want to do it. He washes his hands of it. Mark has the decision forced on him by the jealousy 
in the self-interest of the Jewish authorities, who, like Herodias, against John, had long wanted to kill him, and did so at the very first opportunity she got. Pilate, too. He won't do it himself. He will send an executioner to dispatch the prisoner in a gruesome manner. And like John's disciples, Joseph of Arimathea will take up Jesus' corpse and lay it in a tomb. When examining the parallels between the deaths of Agamemnon and John the Baptist, seemingly satisfy several of the criteria that we are using for mimesis, for imitation. In fact, the parallels are not necessarily dense. However, they are super sequential. Let's take a closer look. Because in the Odyssey, Homer narrated the story as a flashback. And so does Mark when crafting his story. Clytemnestra left her husband for his cousin. Whereas in Mark, Herodias left her husband for her husband's brother. Clytemnestra sought out to kill Agamemnon, who posed a threat to her having an affair. Just like in Mark, where he has Herodias seek out to kill John the Baptist, who in turn posed a threat to her having an affair. Agisthus hosted a banquet where he invited the king and all of his soldiers. Where, in Mark's story, Herod Antipas hosted a banquet and invited some dignitaries. Agamemnon was slain while serving dishes, while John the Baptist was beheaded, and his head was brought out on a platter. The feast in the Odyssey was befouled by murder, as was Mark's. The murder of Agamemnon anticipates the perils that Odysseus will have to face. The murder of John the Baptist, too, anticipates for the reader the perils that Jesus will have to face. So you see, not only was the murder of Agamemnon in the epic available to Mark, it was the target of other imitations as well, such as Aeschylus' Agamemnon and Libation Bearers and Sophocles' Electra and Seneca's Agamemnon. It is in these analogies that supply additional details to the tale that binds the death of Agamemnon and John the Baptist together more tightly. Although the Odyssey does state that Agisthus himself slew Agamemnon, but post-Homeric narratives that flourished in Mark's day and his reader's household increasingly blamed Clytemnestra for the murder. According to Homer and Aeschylus, her weapon of choice was a sword. But Sophocles depicted her using a double-bladed axe. But nearly a century before Sophocles, however, an unknown sculptor, portrayed Clytemnestra with an axe attacking her husband, apparently inspired by Homer's comparison of Agamemnon's murder with the sacrifice of an ox. Homer described the slaying of the ox in Book 3, pages 448 through 454. It goes like this. The son of Nesta, Thrasymedes, high of heart, came near and dealt the blow, and the axe cut through the sinews of the neck. The men raised the heifer's head from the broad, weighed earth, and they held it. And Pisistratus, leader of men, cut the throat. 
Now, in one of Euripides' many references to this event, well, he suggests that Clytemestra's axe stuck in the neck of her victims. Then Seneca, Mark's near contemporary, mind you, leaves no doubt that she had decapitated Agamemnon. And it reads like this. Clytemestra, in a mad rage, snatches a two-edged axe. And at the altar, the priest marks with his eye, then the oxen's neck, before she strikes. So now here, now there, her impious hands she aims. He has it! The deed is done. The scarce severed head hangs from a slender part. Here blood streams over his headless trunk. There lies his moaning lips. We even have ancient artists that made Clytemnestra's axe a standard feature of her iconography. And frequently, one finds her about to strike Hobgenon on his head or his neck, as Agathas is about to pierce him with his sword. It's called a double whammy, folks. Then we have Philostratus the Elder, who described in the painting Clytemnestra wielding her axe, and one of her husband's soldiers lay dead on the floor and decapitated. And we also have at the murder of Agathus by Orestes, where we find once again with a double-bladed axe, often looming over the heads of her enemies. Just as Clytemnestra and Agathus slew and beheaded Agamemnon at the feast as though he was the ox to be roasted, Herodias and the executioner slew John the Baptist at a feast and served up his head on a platter. Instead of the heavily anticipated by the reader, the head of an ox. Now, Mark's appreciation for Homer might also explain its most obvious disagreement with Josephus, the Jewish-Roman historian, who attributes the death of John the Baptist to Herod's political insights. Mark, on the other hand, ascribes it to Herodias's lust. Whereas the cause of the murders of Agmanon and John the Baptist were royal menage a trois between unfaithful women, their lawful husbands, and a closer relative of their husbands, Clytemnestra, Agmanon, and Agathus in Homer's myth, and Herodias, Philip, and Herod the king in Mark's myth. Agmanon and John the Baptist, each in his own way, represents threats to the illicit unions. And for this reason, each was slain, just as Jesus will be slain by the hands of the elite Jews. Now, the evidence of emulation of Homer's tale is a little difficult to establish, but it's not impossible to imagine. Because Agmanon, well, he was no saint, guys. In fact, he had slain his own daughter, Iphigenia. Also, in order to promote the Trojan War, he brought his Trojan mistress-slash-whore into his home, and therefore caused Clytemnestra's profound and enduring resentment towards him. Can you blame her? But the murdering of her husband, while by no means justified, is comprehensible. John the Baptist, on the other hand, was a saint. He was a holy man loved by many and guiltless, just like Jesus. Mark depicts him as an ascetic because his threat to Herod and Herodias 
was not the threat of a romantic rival, but of a pesky prophet, just like Jesus. Consequently, John's virtues outshined those of Agmanon, just like Jesus, where the guilt of Herodias outdid that of Clytemnestra. Mark used John the Baptist in order to anticipate Jesus' death to the reader, to his audience. But what was the grand illusion here, folks, that this author was trying to create? Well, this is an important question, right? Because theologically, according to Mark's predecessor, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, Jesus was the bridegroom to marry Israel. Israel being the bride, the metaphorical bride. Israel representing, of course, all the Jews of Judea. The Jews, or the bride, or the wife in Mark's illusion, betrays the husband-to-be, Jesus. And like Agmanon, was ultimately murdered in a three-way affair. Jesus being the husband, Israel the Jews, and the Roman Empire. The Jewish elite in Mark's imagination had an illicit affair with the Caesar and all the dignitaries of the Roman Empire. And just like the murder of Agmanon, the bride, or Israel, didn't kill Jesus on their own. It was by second hand. It was Pilate's soldier who fetched Jesus from jail, who played the part of Agathus, who ultimately carried out the dastardly deed. Mark's intention was to draw his reader to a familiar household story where the outcome is predicted, as well as the character's intentions in the story. The reader of Mark's gospel already knew the ending. They just needed to understand who the new players were. Mark's readers understood that Agmanon's fate was going to also be the fate of Jesus in this story. But more importantly, by whom and by why? This anti-Semitic author left his readers understanding that Jesus' death would be on the hands of no one other but the Jews. Twice in Mark, Jesus feeds thousands of people with a small quantity of bread and some dried fish that he probably picked up while cashing out getting a six-pack of beer at the 7-Eleven. Now, scholars variously explain these twin episodes as evidence of two historical events, or as two reports of a single event, or as two performances of a popular legend, perhaps, or even as evidence of a pre-Markan chain of miracle stories characterized by two cycles of other similar tales. But no matter what the origin of these feeding stories are, the presence of both in the gospel are strategic and intentional. Additionally, Jesus performing mass feedings fulfills another trope that Jesus too is a prophet of God's, just like Moses and just like Elisha, who both feed the multitudes. Mark had to check this box and use the Septuagint for inspiration for both of these stories as well. Now, when we look at the second story of the mass feeding, 
It begins by reminding the reader or the hearer or Mark's audience that there was again a great crowd without anything to eat, just like the great crowd of 5,000 that he fed earlier. Later, Jesus reminds the 12, the 12 disciples, of both the miraculous feedings and uses them and the disciples' oblivion to epitomize once again their ridiculous incomprehension. Such as when Jesus has to say, Do you not understand? As seen in Mark 8, 19-22. So their failure to understand the significance of the feeding miracles prepares the reader for the failure to understand the scene in the Last Supper. If Mark only knew of one miraculous feeding story, he had sufficient literary reason to do so. Because neither story existed before Mark in reality, and he created both of them from biblical and Homeric epics. Now the setting of both stories, well, they take place in the wilderness, along with a vast number of people who are fed. And the providing supply of bread have caused many critics to believe that Mark's story just echoed God's provision of manna during the wandering of Israel. Why? in order to demonstrate that Jesus is far better than the antiquated Moses. But the structure of Mark's story, or stories, actually owe less to Jewish wilderness traditions, because the narration obviously seems to resemble the multiplication of loaves that are attributed to Elisha. For instance, the quote is, A man came from Bethsaida and brought to the man of God twenty loaves of barley and fruit bread. And Elisha said, Give it to the people and let them eat. Elisha's servant said to him, How can I offer this before one hundred men? And Elisha said, Give it to the people, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left, according to the word of the Lord. 2 Kings chapter 4, 42 Now obviously, the parallels between this story of Elisha and those related to Mark's Jesus are far too close to be accidental. Not to mention this author for Mark has borrowed other motifs from two kings, such as the raising of Jarius' daughter, in the same exact way that Elisha raises a dead boy. Here we have a man of God command someone to share an, an inadequate supply of bread with a large amount of people, and those told to do so respond with incredulous questions. However, in the end they do comply and the large crowd does get to eat until completely satisfied. And there's always a healthy surplus left over. More than enough. If Mark's readers were aware of this literary borrowing, which more than likely they were, especially in his Jewish communities, would have quickly have noticed that this Jesus was had a greater power. Greater power not over just Moses, but also Elisha. What a surprise, right? Now the prophet, Elisha's 20 loaves, fed 100 people. But Jesus' mere five loaves, just five, not 20, fed 5,000 loaves with 12 baskets to spare man. Furthermore, Jesus repeated the miraculous feat 
when he fed 4,000 more. That's 9,000 people with seven loaves, leaving seven baskets untouched. I'm sure they all sat there on a rock and Jesus probably fed the birds. But the supply of manna in the wilderness and Elisha's multiplication of the loaves might seem to leave out some additional literary influence. However, these old Jewish texts cannot account for the several important details found in Mark's little tale. For example, Mark portrays his Jesus as an exemplary host to many. Because right after he feeds the 5,000, well, Jesus invites his disciples to take a short little vacation with him on the Grand Caymans. He says, come away with me to a deserted place all by yourselves and let's rest for a while. Let's sit on a rock, fellas, and feed some birds with some dry bread. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Mark 6.31 Jesus had compassion for the crowd, guys. This is what Mark is saying. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 6.34 Then compared to where Mark got this from, Numbers 27.17 and 1 Kings 22.17, 2 Chronicles 18.6, Jeremiah 31.10, Ezekiel 34, 5, Zechariah 10, 12, and Judith 11, 19. Yes, this author who wrote Mark knew his Jewish Bible, so I have no doubt, guys, that he was a Romano Jew. Living in Rome is what Romano Jew means. And Mark made sure that as Jesus refused to send anyone away hungry, even though feeding them would have cost him dearly, because taking the few supplies available, he managed to spread a humble but copious feast and order the disciples around like waiters. Right? Be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test. Sorry, I digress. But he told them, the disciples, to arrange several grand drinking parties, like so many garden spots on the green grass. Apparently because... Lush grass offers his guests greater support, greater comfort over the rocky shores where they supposedly were. Then Jesus gave a proper blessing and sent his disciples to serve as guests, and everyone ate until full. The disciples dutifully gathered the remaining fragments of food, one basket each, and the fare was modest. But the service, I mind you, was superb. Now, Jesus' level of service and manners even hold up during the second mass-feeding frenzy, and once again, Mark makes sure that Jesus has compassion for the crowd and would never think about ever sending any of them away without food. Once again, the crowd took their seats, and Jesus once again praised and then divided the loaves and the fish, and everyone went home with the full belly and dry pants. And once again, the disciples were ordered to clean up the damn mess. Come on, get on it, get on it. Now, one should also observe in the two miraculous feedings of many 
the significant differences that are impossible to explain from biblical sources. Although Mark does tell both stories as taking place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus arrives at the first location, the first feeding, by boat. And then the second one, by land. He walks. And in both stories, Jesus commands the crowds to recline. Take it easy. But only in the first one, only in the first feeding, do they do so in well-organized groups. Now, the first feeding also had connections to the Roman soldiers that rested there and ate at the shore of the Sea of Galilee as well, after launching an attack on the revolutionaries. See my episode on Mark, a documentary on the war of 66 to 70 for more on that. But the thousands that were fed in the first story were also all men, for obvious reasons. This author really wanted to offer up his myth marker or flag by making the point that they were all soldiers and that his Jesus fed them. Mark shows that the people who were fed by Jesus were ordered to sit in companies, group by group. Group by group is the Greek that he uses in chapter 6, 39 to 40. Now, sitting in companies, group by group, well, it certainly sounds like a military expression that was used by Josephus. Expression linking Mark's story about Jesus to the war of 66 to 70. Mark's audience would think about seeing all those Roman troops sitting in formation during their times of rest and eating. Mark is reminding his readers about the Roman occupation. But not only the violence, but also the times of rest. One could say that Jesus was, in fact, playing the role of Vespasian in this scene. However, presumably there may have been women in the second feeding. But the presence of having two stories about mass feedings instead of just one, one really good one, mind you, and the connections of the stories with Jesus sailing to the shore, and the emphasis on hospitality, and these subtle differences between the two accounts, Maybe evidence that this author was not only influenced by the Elisha narrative in two kings and Josephus' Jewish wars, mind you, but also the double feast that begins in book three and four of Homer's Odyssey. By the way, if you look at the map, the Roman army that Vespasian dispatched to launch an attack was by boat, just like Jesus. The second attack would have been on foot. Just like Jesus. If we were to open up the Odyssey and read about the Feast of Nestor and Menelaus at Sparta, the central events in the so-called Telemachia are clearly doublets, literary doublets. Because Telemachus went to Pylos and Sparta in order to consult with the Achaean heroes about his father's whereabouts, being Odysseus, of course. But at the feast, Telemachus learned little about his father. However, what he did learn was a good case of good manners, just like the wonderful host Jesus was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to his guests. Now, Homer 
he contrasted his Nestor and Menelaus against the suitors, as you recall, were horrible people, demonstrating greed, rudeness, and then ate Odysseus out of his house and home while he was away. They drank all of his wine, those bastards. Now, when Nestor and his sons first saw Athena and Telemachus, in quotations, all came thronging about them and clasped their hands in welcome and bade them to sit down or recline. They offered their guests appetizers, then asked them to offer prayers up to Poseidon and gave them a golden cup for libations, first to Athena, the elder of the two guests. Now, now, being super impressed by their social grace, Athena proceeded to pray that Poseidon grant recognition to Nestor and his sons, and that the god receive their sacrifices with great favor. Also, Nestor did not ask his guests what their names were until they were full, full belly and dry pants. Odyssey, Book 3, 34 through 70. But Nestor here, he could not compete with Menelaus as a host. Because the double wedding party for his children, it included extravagant decorations everywhere. They even had a really cool band. And not one, but two acrobats. Now, I think every party should have at least one acrobat. Now, despite the event being private, Menelaus decided to invite the strangers to dine before knowing even who they were. Indeed, he even scolded his servants who suggested to send them on their way and unfed. Hell, he even fed their horses. <laughs> then he told his maid servants to bathe his nude, nude, his new guests. See what my mind is? Even anoint them and provide them with some fleecy cloaks and tunics. He even had them sit at the head of the table like Captain Steubing on the love boat. Menelaus and Helen did not learn the identity of their guest until after dinner. Now Telemachus was mastering his lesson on how to be of superb service by this point. For when he got home, he demonstrated all these new skills, even at the hut of the swineherd, in which he even refused to take a seat away from an old beggar, who you recall was actually as Father Odysseus in disguise. But because meals and accompanying hospitality were common themes in ancient literature, so the mere presence of twin feast found in the epic and the gospel, well, it requires no criticism here whatsoever. However, the parallels between Homer and Mark go way beyond generalities. Because the details in Homer's story about Nestor's feast that are not found in the story of Menelaus appear in the feeding of the 5,000 and not the twin. Follow along? And sim similarly, the details in the story of Menelaus that are not found in the story of Nestor do appear in the feeding of the 4,000 instead of the first story of Mark. So, what are the odds that these similarities in both feedings in Homer and Mark are just coincidental? I'm guessing very slim. The most acceptable explanation is Mark's imitation of Homer's epic, because these correlations are broken down into five narrative elements, starting with Jesus' arrival of the feedings. 
the number as well as the gender of the guests that are present at the feedings. And the seating arrangements, the blessing and the distribution of food, and then the voyages that follow the feeding. It's all the same shit. These five elements we must break down in order to identify Mark's lifting from the epic. So let's start with the journey to the feedings. It was Telemachus who sailed to Nestor's feast at Pylos, which was on the shore of the sea. But for the second feast, well, he had to travel by chariot to get to landlocked Sparta. Now, similarly, Jesus, too, in Mark's imitation, traveled by boat to the first feast, but traveled by land to the second, even though it still took place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Also, Jesus plays a role that is similar to that of Telemachus in these sea voyages. But in the feeding stories, he transitions and no longer plays that role of Telemachus, but now of the host, or the hosts, Nestor and Menelaus. In other words, Mark's interest in characterizations and motifs or episodes of the epic are way more important than making his Jesus correspond consistently to any single character at this point. Now let's take a look at the number and gender of the people who were served. When Telemachus and Athena arrived at the part of Pylos, there they witnessed a feast to Poseidon on the shore where the celebrants sat divided into nine individual units. And 500 men were in each. 4,500. Then later, the poet makes it clear that this feast only the men of Pylos participated. So to Homer, this was a dude's only affair. Very important, right? It's the connection to Mark. Now, this male-only or this guy-only party in Homer presumably is due to the nature of the feast, a sacrifice by sailors in order to secure favorable weather and seas from the god Poseidon. Now, the 5,000 who Jesus served at the shore of Galilee, likewise, were all dudes. Sounds like a great time. Hence the lotion, right? And sunscreen. Now, all the way down to the same exact Greek word does he use. Mark gives no justification for really inviting men to this beach party. However, the author for Matthew, who writes a decade or, you know, later or so, he hates that Mark did that. He hates all the allusions that he makes to Homer. So Matthew picks up on this shit. And what does he do? Well, he throws not only women, but children into the mix. Get that Homeric shit out of here. Out of my Jesus story. Jesus Christ, man. What are you trying to do, Mark? Now, the correlations of boats disembarking at the shore and the feeding of 4,500 or 5,000 men are simply not accidental or coincidental because they are Mark and myth markers to inform the reader to start paying attention and look for the next clue coming in the next narrative. In Homer's second feast at Menelaus' Sparta was lavish, but presumably smaller because it was a wedding feast that included women. Just like the crowd in Mark's second feeding, 
though substantial, is still much smaller than the first and included women as well. Where the first feeding was all dudes. Dudes on the beach. So we have both heroes arriving by boat at a shore. Sparta and Galilee. Both heroes fed only men with outstanding manners. And both hosts prayed to a god. Poseidon and Yahweh. Or, or Yahweh, I guess I should say. And in both second feedings, our heroes feed both men and women and to a much smaller group than the first. Now, what about the seating arrangements in both of these stories, huh? Well, Homer says that on the beach at Pylos, nine seating groups were there and 500 sat in each. Whereas Mark tells us that on the shore of Galilee, Jesus told disciples to have the 5,000 men recline on the green grass in drinking parties, and they laid down by the hundreds and fifties in garden bed arrangements. Now, many interpreters multiply the numbers 50 times 100 equals 5,000 in order to depict the crowd sitting in block-like legions. Legions for we are many, remember? Military term, legion? Or simply an army. Which also explains why Mark chose to have only men in this scene, because it would symbolize to the reader an army like one described in Josephus' Jewish wars after the attack on Galilee, but with a deeper Jewish connection to Exodus 18.21. Even though the numbers don't match up perfectly. But in Mark's mind, that would be offering up just way too many myth markers for free. He wants you to work at it a little bit. But what about this use of drinking parties or garden bed arrangements? This would suggest that this dinner party sat in separate groups. Just like the author for Luke and Luke 9.14 who writes, where they sat in groups of about 50 each. One might reasonably argue that the nine groups of 500 in each, in each epic, have become the unspecified number of groups of hundreds and fifties in Mark's tale as well. Now Mark uses two terms for the verb sitting, or to sit, and both of which mean to recline in a much more formal setting, including like chandelier, champagne, big overbound leather chairs for the guests. The same Greek that Homer used to recline. Now, this suggests that the meal is a lot less of a picnic affair and more like a banquet. It'd be like Jesus saying, Hey guys, pull up a chair, pour yourself some champagne, and dig your toes into the grass. So Jesus' command to the crowd to lie in the more comfortable green grass also parallels the command that Telemachus and Athena says to sit on soft fleeces upon the sand of the sea. Now I'd like to compare the text side by side. In the Odyssey, Book 3, 34-38, we get this. But when they saw the strangers, they came thronging about them, and clasped their hands in welcome, and bade them to all sit down. Then in Mark 6, 34, as well as 39-40, we get this. As Jesus went to shore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, 
He ordered them to all get all the people to recline on the grass and in drinking parties. Then back to the Odyssey. First, Nestor's son, Pisistratus, came near and took both by hand and made them sit down at the feast on the soft fleece upon the sand of the sea. Then Mark concludes with, and they laid down by the hundreds and fifties in garden bed arrangements. So these parallels not only solve the problem of Mark's need to having his guests sit in groups, they also have no correlation to either stories of the second feast, the wedding party at Sparta, and Mark's feeding of 4,000. Now when we analyze the blessings and the distribution of the food at the feast in Pylos, Opisistratos then served the hors d'oeuvres and asked the strangers to pray to the god Poseidon. Then both Athena and Telemachus offered up their prayers. Just how Mark has his Jesus do it. Jesus prayed to, supposedly, Yahweh, or perhaps Poseidon, the god of the Jews, we think, and then served the food to his guests. Now, when the Odyssey, Book 3, 63-68, Homer writes this. She gave Telemachus the handsome two-handled cup, and in like manner the staunch son of Odysseus he began to pray to Poseidon. Then when they had roasted the outer flesh and drawn it off the spits, they divided the portions and partook in the glorious feast. But when they had put from the desires of food and drink. Now in Mark 6, Verses 41, we get this. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he took up to heaven and blessed, and broke the loaves, and then gave them to the disciples to set forth to the people. And he divided the fish among them all, and all ate and were filled. So now you can see that there are similar parallels between the blessing as well as the distribution of food in the Feast of Menelaus, as well as Mark's feeding of the 4,000. Because both Menelaus and Jesus felt sorry for their guest because they had gone so long without any food. Also, in both stories, someone asked the host a question that tries to discourage them from showing hospitality. In Homer, well, Menelaus' servant asked, Shall we unyoke for them their swift horses or send them on their way to some other host? whereas Jesus refused to send the crowd away hungry to their homes. And the disciples said, How can one feed these people with bread in the desert? Both hosts responded by insisting on showing the utmost level of hospitality. Now let's compare Homer to Mark now. They stirred to exceeding pleasure. A fair-haired Menelaus spoke to him, saying, Bring the men in so that they may feast. And they sat down on chairs beside Menelaus. And the revered housekeeper brought and set forth them bread, and with the dainties in abundance, giving freely of what she had. And a carver lifted up and set before them platters of all sorts of meat, and set them by with golden goblets. So saying he, Menelaus, took in his hands roast meat, and set it before them. So they put forth their hands to good cheer, lying ready before them. But when they had put forth them the desire of food and drink. Mark writes, 
Then Jesus ordered the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took seven loaves. And after giving thanks to God, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to hand out. And they distributed them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. And they ate. Now compare the Odyssey, Book 4, 30, 36, 51, and 55, as well as 65 to Mark chapter 8, 6 through 8. Now what about those voyages that followed the mass feedings? Because immediately after the feeding of the crowds, well, Jesus sails from both places along with his disciples. For example, after the feeding frenzy of the 5,000, well, Mark, he writes about Jesus taking a leisure water stroll, literally walking on top of the water, out to the boat to where the twelve are waiting, versus just climbing into the boat when they all got in. And at the end of which, Mark explains the astonishment of the disciples as evidence that they just could not understand the meaning of the multiplication of the loaves. Even after the feeding of the 4,000, Mark's readers find that there are two voyages. One to Damanutha, where he finds the whining Pharisees, and the other to Bethsaida, where he rebukes the disciples for still not having comprehension. Why don't you guys get this? Even after he had just twice multiplied bread. Seriously, guys, how stupid are you? Oy vey! Now, although there are a few verbal parallels between the voyages at the end of the two feeding stories, they also appear to be in the form of doublets. Because after both Feast and Homer's Book 3 and Book 4 of the Odyssey, we find lengthy accounts of the return voyages of the Achaeans. Now, clearly this author for Mark utilized the feasts found in Homer. Not just because he had to read it in school, but because Telemachia, also played a very important role in Greek education. Additionally, Mark's imitation had some very ancient analogies as well. For example, in the book of Tobit, though written in Aramaic, almost certainly this author modeled the journey of Tobias to Ecbatana to fetch his father's money, after Homer writes about the journey of Telemachus to the mainland to search for his father. The feast of Menelaus and Helen in Homer was the primary model for Tobias' feast with Azaria and Edna, as found in the book of Tobit, chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. And the feast of Nestor in Homer influenced Virgil's account of Aeneas' reception by Evander, and probably also an episode in Christian Acts of Andrew. Now, the doublet wedding feast of Menelaus also becomes a literary opportunity for the author, for the Acts of Andrew, for the apostle to convince the couple in the story to cancel their elaborate celebration plans and to remain chaste instead. Furthermore, the parallels found between Telemachia and Mark's feast are both dense as well as sequential. Because in Mark and the Odyssey narrative, Twin meals in which characters provided an abundance of food for huge crowds. 4,500 men by Nestor and an unnumbered crowd of men and women by Menelaus. 5,000 men and 4,000 people by Jesus. The twinned meals in both tales educate other characters in the story. 
And Homer, well, the meals teach Telemachus etiquette and hospitality. Now to Homer, that was by design for ancient Greeks to learn etiquette and hospitality. Whereas in Mark, on the other hand, it taught early Christian Jesus' power over the Homeric as well as Mosaic heroes and his compassion, of course. Now, by design to teach Christians that Jesus is the new Odysseus, the updated Nestor, and the much better Telemachus, to become the new household name, and that Christians should also strive to be compassionate towards others, just like the ancient heroes of Rome, but updated 2.0. Now, to make better sense of this, let's look at these two accounts closer. Because in the Odyssey during the first feast, Telemachus and Athena sailed and the disembarked at the shore. There they found a great crowd of 4,500 men on the shore. Sailors, in other words, military, making another Josephan connection, of course. Then everyone sat down in companies, another military term, nine groups of 500 each. Pisistratus ordered his guests to sit. Nestor sacrificed, and others prayed to Zeus. They then took the meat and divided the food. Everyone ate and was filled. In Mark's first feast, Jesus and his disciples sailed to the shore and they disembarked. They found a great crowd, not of 4,500, but 5,000 men. 500 more than in Homer's tale, but still all men. Everyone sat down in drinking groups and garden beds, 100s and 50s, by 100s and 50s. Jesus ordered the men to all sit down. Jesus then offered thanks to God. Jesus then took the loaves and the fish and divided them. Everyone ate and everyone was filled. Then for the second feast, Telemachus and Pisistratus rode to Sparta instead of sailing this time. Menelaus refused to send away anybody who was hungry. There, everyone sat down, both men and women this time. They partook in bread, wine, and meat, and distributed them among all the people. Homer used a scene to show how to educate Telemachus, or all ancient Greeks, the art of hospitality. And Mark's second feast, on the other hand, well, Jesus and his disciples, they didn't sail or ride. No, they walked, of course, all the way to Galilee. There, Jesus refused to send his guests away hungry as well. So everyone sat down, including both men and women this time. Then Jesus took the bread and the fish and distributed them to everybody. Everyone here, too, ate and was fulfilled. This Christian author used the meal also to demonstrate Jesus' hospitality and light of Homer's character by way of educating his disciples once again about his generosity as a Christian, but also his amazing power to produce and multiply loaves of fish and bread. The one thing that Homer didn't feel that his hero or heroes needed to do. Evidently, Mark felt as if his Jesus, his hero, needed to have some God magic. Now, some of these parallels are indeed pedestrian. But on the other hand, 
Several of them are quite distinctive and should be considered as flags. Flags altering the reader to view Mark's text in light of some similar stories, not just similar stories, but household stories found in the epics. Why? Because that is exactly what Mark has done all throughout his gospel narrative, from start to finish, pulling not only from the epics, but also from Josephus' Jewish wars and the Jewish epic, the Septuagint. Mark borrows scenes, both historical as well as fiction, from these works, inserts as Jesus, his personal values, and then contrasts them over each other in order to demonstrate that the ways of the ancient Greeks and the Jews are outdated and dangerous. Hence, the Roman Jewish affairs of 66 to 70. In these chapters of the feast, the very presence of there being twin feedings in both books is highly unusual, is highly suspect, unless the author is doing so on purpose. So the flag markers here apply particularly of the 5,000, a voyage, the disembarking from the boat, a sacred meal with a prayer to a god to thousands of men. So the parallels with the Feast of Nestor might also help explain Mark's curious military seating arrangement of the men near the sea in organized groups. However, I'm more convinced that this scene is an overlap from the Jewish wars, after Vespasian conquered his first city in his military campaign, Galilee, where his ships disembarked at the shore and killed thousands of Jewish fighters and then they rested at a Galilean seaport village called Caesarea Philippi, where Vespasian is declared as the Messiah and the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. Josephus, Josephus even goes as far as pointing out that those Jews were wrong by thinking that a leader would rise up and be like one of them, that they were misinterpreting the scripture. Vespasian was the Messiah. Vespasian is the liberator of the Jews, the Jews who are being corrupted by the messianic figures claiming to be the fulfillment of God's plan by expediting the apocalypse. But I think this author's clearest myth marker to his reader was the reference to Jesus having 5,000 men sit in drinking party by drinking party. That is literally the Greek that he chose to use probably because the Feast of Menelaus and Nestor were both called Symposia, which is a small drinking party, even though the usual number of men at such parties was somewhere between three and perhaps 20 at the most, and women were never allowed to attend these. It's a guy thing. But once again, I believe this idea was probably inspired by Vespasian's troops celebrating on the shore with beer in hand all men in military-style seating groups as the bloody bodies of the Jewish revolt filled the beaches. Additionally, at one of the garrulous dinners among Athenaeus's super sagas, who was a famous Greek rhetorician, went on a great length about Homer's symposia, including those of Nestor and Menelaus, and used them as examples of how such parties should be conducted 
Athenaeus also viewed Homer's feast as the model for symposia in later literature. Just men drinking in small groups. So what would Mark's readers have gained if they had indeed read the tales in light of Homer's epics? I mean, are these parallels even interpretable? Nestor and Menelaus provided meals from their fabled wealth, or is Jesus from his divine powers? Powers that Paul was completely unaware of, mind you. The inspiration for this scene in Mark also inspired the author for a myth found in two kings narrative. Chapter 4, 42-44, where the prophet Elisha also multiplied loaves or bread to feed the masses, which demonstrated that whoever wrote two kings could also read Homeric Greek, and probably in Hellenized Alexandria, Egypt, where many Jews and Jewish poets wrote prose on ethics and theology in the 3rd century BCE. But in Mark's little tale here, his Jesus only offered his guests bread and some dried fish. Not this lavish Greek spread as found in the epics, with champagne and chandelier. More importantly, Mark didn't preserve Jesus' generosity and his manners as examples to his readers on how to throw this killer dinner party that didn't even include beer or wine, like Vespasian's beach party fiesta. Rather, the educational moralizing force of Mark's feeding stories was to demonstrate Jesus' power and kindness over Homer's heroes with the unstoppable power and force of Aspasian's army. This, my friends, has been a Skeptical Ghost Heathen production.